You know, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount for a while because it's three chapters, and we kind of go slow. We're right in the middle of uh, chapter five right now, and we're in the thick of things. We've been talking about uh, the six antitheses. Getting Jesus is getting into this redefinition of the law. And everything about Jesus is love, right? Everything Jesus is trying to communicate is this sea change in our worldview, this sea change in the basic way that we look at life. Because all of human life, our societies and our families, are built on justice, The groups that we are part of need justice in order to be able to survive, and so justice is that qualifying factor. And so we imagine that our relationship with God is the same way, but God isn't like anything else that we find on earth. God stands outside of this space and time continuum, as we like to say. And so there's a whole different economy, if you will, that works with God. When we're talking about God and we're talking about perfect love, infinite love, we're talking about relationship, then everything that we know about legalities and contracts and quid pro quo and zero-sum games goes right out the window. And if we can't make this shift, if we can't make this turn into seeing God from a completely different way, our lives are going to reflect the fear that the law engenders. It's always a fear of punishment, right? It's always the promise of reward, but only after performance, which keeps us on that hamster wheel, always wondering if we're good enough at any given time. Jesus is trying to change all that in us. He's working so hard. You know, you see him in every, every passage of the Gospels, trying to get this one point across. You could call Jesus a Johnny One Note if you want to, because he really only has one point. But he says it loud, and he says it long, and he says it with infinite word pictures, infinite metaphors, infinite images to try to get this across. So here he is in the middle of Matthew 5, trying to do this very same thing. But we got a huge irony here, right? Jesus is all about reframing life in love. This sermon is his manifesto, if you will, on love. And yet, in the middle of Matthew 5... (laughs) He sounds harder right than the Pharisees. He sounds more conservative, more legalistic than the Pharisees even. He's taking the law and moving it beyond the bounds of the macro, beyond the bounds of the written law, and taking it into our own hearts and thought life. And that is crazy-making for people. It was hard for them then. It's even harder for us now. We've said over and over, the church hasn't known what to do with the Sermon on the Mount for 2,000 years, and so largely kind of ignores it and focuses on Paul, because Paul gives us something that we can hang an institution on, because that's what he was doing. He was growing groups. Jesus was working one-on-one. So at Matthew 5, starting at verse 21 that we covered last week, Jesus is talking about murder. These six antitheses, Jesus does not shy away from the hard subjects. He doesn't shy away from controversy. He just jumps right in with both feet. He takes six of the most difficult issues that were facing the people of his time. You know, murder, adultery, remarriage, oath-taking, which was huge in that culture, much more huger than it is in ours. The law of retribution, 
lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and loving your enemy. These six are the difficult tasks that Jesus set out for himself, and in each one, he's going to try to tweak us. But he does it in such a way that at first blush, and in, in the literal understanding, especially from the English, it sounds more legal than the legalists. He says, if you think you're safe because you haven't murdered anyone under the law, I'm here to tell you that if you've even had an angry thought, you're already guilty before the court. And God forbid you should say the first word, you good for nothing, because then you're guilty before the Supreme Court. And if you say you fool, the insult in that culture that was guaranteed to incite violence, then you're guilty of going into the fiery Gehenna. Translated as hell, not exactly the same thing, but you get the picture. How is that even possible? It's absurd on its face that an angry thought is the same as murder. Jesus is looking at our thoughts, he's looking at our words, and he's looking at our deeds, our actions. And he's trying to bring a love-based awareness to everything that we do, everything that we start in just an errant thought in our head, and getting us to the place where we see the escalation and we de-escalate. We see where this is going from the inside out. Everything proceeds from the heart. He's told us that over and over. And so is there a way that we can be so aware at the moment that we can start nipping things in the bud? We can take it into a different, a different place where relationship is still sacrosanct. Relationship is still there. So he starts with murder. Now he's moving into adultery and divorce. And this is going to sound at first blush just as legalistic and almost as crazy as when he talks about murder. And what we're going to have to do, if we're going to understand what Jesus is really saying, is we're going to have to get down in the weeds a bit to be able to see the love here, which means we're getting down into the ancient language, the culture, and the history so that we can understand the context of what's going on. Without the context, everything is lost. But I do want to take as shallow a dive as possible into the weeds, because you can get lost in there. And I don't want this to become some dry treatise. This really is about love. We need to focus on the love. But we're going to have to go through a little bit of detail in order to get there. But hang on to Jesus as the ultimate lover here, the one who is championing love against legality, and see how this starts to look. Now, we take a look at Matthew, starting at verse 29, Matthew 5. I'm sorry. Yeah, not at verse 29, verse 27, Matthew 5. So the same formula. You've heard it was said of old. So now he's going to give us the macro law, the law that they all know about, whether it's written or whether it's traditional. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, now he's going to switch the context to micro. He's going to switch the context to kingdom. Instead of the macro law, Remember that we said last week is not about right and wrong. It's only about resolving conflict with the least amount of damage. That's what the law is about, keeping the integrity of the group. Now he's going to switch it to the micro, where right and wrong is ultimate, where love and mercy and compassion takes the fore. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here we go again. <laughs> is a lustful thought or a lustful glance, the same as actual adultery. Now, it's not as absurd as murder. See, with murder, we can probably guess that Jesus is not being literal, that either he's being hyperbolic or he's got some metaphor going on here, something else, that an angry thought is the same as murder. And then the two illustrations that he gives us right after help. He says, if you're taking your gift to the altar 
right? You're, you're, you're performing your ritual duty at the temple, but you remember that your relationship with someone is in tatters. Well, then leave your gift at the altar and go back and fix the relationship because all that matters is the relationship. The gift, the ritual, is meant to restore relationship, not the other way around. And then he says, if you're going with your adversary to the court because you've got a lawsuit going on, he says, stop along the way and settle it between the two of you before you get to the court. So you get where Jesus is going here when he's talking about murder. It's starting to make sense, right? Yet right after he's talking about murder, now he's talking about adultery and thoughts. Okay. And right after that, he's talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands. So obviously that's not literal, right? And we know that murder and angry thoughts is not literal, but right in between, this one about adultery and lustful thinking, this one has often been taken literally. And yet it's in the context, the larger context, where Jesus is off obviously using rhetorical devices to try to get a point across. And yet we still slip back into a literal understanding. I remember hearing one pastor on the radio saying, no man can even watch TV without sinning. There's just too many images up there. And so he was telling us this, taking this absolutely literally. And once we do that, once we take these passages literally, we are missing the whole point that Jesus is trying to make. We're creating more rules and not more love. And we're losing any common sense that goes along with it. I mean, Jesus' words have to make common sense, don't they? They, they? they can't blow common sense out the window because then abuses start. And so how are we going to understand this? There are actually three layers of meaning here that Jesus is bringing in. The first is a common rabbinical rhetorical device, a teaching device. It's called Kalve Homer. Kalve Homer is literally translates as light and heavy. If something is true in the light or the lesser instance, then how much more true is it in the heavy? It's going to be true in both. Jesus uses this all the time. He says, if you who are evil, bisha, unformed, you know, immature, unripe, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? That is a Kalve Homer argument. That's the idea of light and heavy. He's doing the same thing here. If something is true in the light, then it's also going to be true in the heavy. If it is true in your inner thoughts, how much more true is it when you actually do the act? The relationship is already broken. Kingdom has already been compromised in your experience, maybe just yours. Even though you haven't done anything overt, nothing that you're liable for, already, light and heavy. He's trying to get that across. The second is what we just talked about, the idea of escalation and de-escalation. With the murder and the anger, there are three stages of escalation that Jesus talks about. It's, still the, it's the thought first, it's the word second, and it's the action third. Everyone, everything escalates. That last word that is said, lela, you know, you fool, that would be guaranteed to create a physical response if you were to say that to someone in that culture at that time. And so from thought to word, to action. Those are the three stages of escalation that Jesus is saying, be wary of as soon as you are. Practice your awareness. As soon as you know, start to bring it back down. De-escalate it. 
With adultery and lustful thoughts, there are also three stages. The eye, the hand, and the foot. And now let's take a look at verse 29 and 230. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to, be, to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into Gehenna, into the fiery hell. Now, he doesn't talk about the foot here. <coughs> but Mark includes that at Mark 9.45. So here's the idea. This is the way the Jews looked at the escalation of anything that you coveted. First, you see it with your eye. Your foot takes you to it, and your hand grasps it. So that was the idea, from the eye to the foot to the hand. <coughs> Ever had one of those mornings? The amp doesn't work. The throat doesn't work. <clears throat> Same thing here. These, de- these escalations, to nip it in the bud and to de-escalate. The marriage, your relationship, is already compromised with the thoughts that are allowed to grow, the fantasies <clears throat> that are allowed to become permanent in your mind. Martin Luther <clears throat> ah, Martin Luther was famous for saying, I can't help it if a bird flies over my head, but I can't keep it from building a nest in my hair. Same sort of idea here, right? I don't know if this is going to help, but I'll try <coughs> it's that tickle. Mm. So these are the three stages that he's trying to get across to us. Are we aware of them? We're already compromised then. Then he moves on to divorce and remarriage. So he's trying to establish this idea of the sanctity of marriage itself, how we keep the relationship tight how we guard our thoughts and keep them on our spouse and keep the relationship tight. When that starts to fall apart, how do you deal with divorce and remarriage? Okay, verse 31. It was said, there's that same formula, right? It was said of old, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, this is crazy, right? How are we supposed to understand this? What is he talking about? Now, this actually is a shorthand. It's like the punchline, if you will, of a larger passage at Matthew 19. And so we're going to go there and read the larger passage. This is a shortened version of it. Matthew 19, starting at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And the way that actually translates is any matter, for any matter. So there, just hold on to that that thought. If you're looking in your inserts, you see that it's in bold. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, that literally translates as a matter of indecency. Any matter and a matter of indecency, important phrases that we're going to need later on. And marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay, very harsh. Once again, it doesn't seem to help much, but we get a little bit more context about what is going on. Now, since the parting of the ways between Greek and Jew in the second century happened a long time ago, after the temple fell, after the second Jewish-Roman war at the beginning of the second century, there really was no Jewish presence anymore in Christendom in the Eastern Empire. And so it was all Greek Jews, Western, I'm sorry, Greek Christians, Western Christians. And they have been interpreting, and we have been interpreting passages like this, literally because we've lost the context, the Jewish context behind them. We need to restore that so we can understand what Jesus is saying and how this leads us back to love, how this leads us back to connection. It apparently seems that from what we're reading here, that there is only one ground for divorce. <laughs> he is determined to heal me. Uh, it appears that there's only one ground for divorce, and that is adultery. That's the way that the West has translated this matter of indecency as in adultery or unchastity. And then remarriage equals adultery. Really? Is that really the case? If you get remarried after a divorce, are you really committing adultery? <clears throat> Some of you have heard this story from Marion in my past. We had joined about 30 years ago, joined an evangelical church, fairly conservative, pretty conservative. And when, after three years of dating, we decided it was time to get married and tie the knot, and we asked our pastor if he would marry us, he said no. Of course, we were dumbfounded and shocked. Marion and I were both married before we met each other. And he said, because you didn't have a biblical reason for your divorce, we can't marry you again because that would be adultery. And furthermore, I was already in leadership in the church. I was already studying to be a pastor at that time. And he said, the elder from First Timothy of the church has to be the husband of just one wife, which they interpreted in a series rather than all at once. You know, polygamy was still going on in the first century in the Eastern Mediterranean. And, um, and so, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you do with that? You know, they really didn't even know the circumstances of our marriages, our first marriages, or our divorces, but they were just going by the letter here, by the letter of the law as they saw it, reading these passages this literal way. And, of course, we were shocked, and Marion was in tears, and my head was spinning. So me, the way I work, I just dove into study because that's what I do. If I can understand it, I can control it, right? And so I started studying things, and I found one book that had four different scholars' opinions on Christian divorce and remarriage, all bound within the same cover, coming to four different conclusions, reading the same passages. You know, that's when my light bulb went on over my head, where I realized, oh, interpretation of Scripture is an opinion. It doesn't come whole cloth from God. It's an opinion. Now, it could be an educated one. It could be a good one. But it's still an opinion, and the other people have other opinions. This changed everything for me. I was able to dive into my studies in a different way and open up to different interpretations, go outside of my church and find different ways of looking at things because it was so essential. That one 
crisis that Marion and I had changed everything. And as I started to look at Christian divorce and remarriage from a Hebrew point of view, things really started to change. Because what were they basically saying? They were saying that divorce was the unforgivable sin. There was no way to get out of divorce. You couldn't marry again. That was adultery. And you couldn't even get married if certain criteria hadn't been met. Now, ultimately, they did marry us. And the reason that they used was that neither Marion or I were Christians when we were married before, so it didn't count. <laughs> even though we were both raised Catholic, <clears throat> not Christian, it was just, it was a fig leaf, you know, and it, it, it retained unity and, you know, allowed us to get married. Um, but it, it, was, it all just seemed so absurd to me. How do you do this? You know, on the other hand, our drummer at the time was an ex-heroin addict. He'd been clean for, I don't know how long, a couple years. And his past was just gnarly. I mean, what he did living on the street, you know, uh, prostitution to support his habit, all the things that he did, and yet he was being held up as this model of God's redemption and regeneration and was being asked to speak before the church and being asked to speak in front of the kids and do all these things, you know, and our little divorces were going to kick us right out into the cold. All of this made absolutely no sense to me. But it was the catalyst that I needed to start in a different path, and so now I'm grateful for it, even though it was really difficult at the time. This idea of divorce is the unforgivable sin, watching pastors sending spouses back to abusive partners, and the pain and the abuse that that created, something had to change here. Shouldn't scripture make common sense? Shouldn't scripture make common decency to us as we look at it and we see the results of it in the lives of the people around us, at least where scripture is being imposed as law, as the authority to govern other people's lives, it has to make common sense. It has to make common decency, or we will be doing so much damage, more damage than good. So how literal should we be when we read these passages? Well, I would say we need to be as literal as those passages were written. Not literal in terms of the way we read them, but how were they written? What was the circumstance? What was the context? See, I want to be the most literal guy in the room, but I want to be as literal as the author was. Not literal on my own terms, literal on their terms, because that makes sense. And in order to do this, we need to start thinking like a detective. We've got to put our forensic glasses on. And we need to be as aware of what's missing, what's not in the text, as what is, because that is the fullness of the context. The ancients didn't put something in if it was common knowledge. Why would you? Everybody knows that. I always like to say, you know, there's only two passages, two verses that say that Jesus wept. There's no passages that said he laughed, right? I think that tells us something. Everybody knew that Jesus was constantly laughing. It was news when he wept. That got into the scriptures, you know? They don't put things in if it's common knowledge. And so we need to find out what that context was. What was the common knowledge that's going to give the context for what is actually there? Let me ask you a question. Is it lawful? for someone to drink in California under the age of 21? No. 
What are you saying, yes? No. The drinking age is 21, right? Is it lawful? Okay, I know where he's going. Drink what? Water? See, we, uh, if you ask a question that way, is it lawful for someone under 21 to drink in California, you're going to say automatically no. We are supplying what everybody knows of a question phrased that way, alcoholic beverages, right? We know that we, because the question makes absolutely no sense without that qualifier. But we don't say it because we don't need to, because it's already there. But a literal meaning without context can be disastrous, and it can end up being abusive. So... We need to get to the context of Jesus saying. So let's read Matthew 19 again, and let's see if we can start to put this in context. So, you know, just get comfortable for a second, because here's where we're going to get into the weeds a little bit, but I hope it'll help. And don't worry about remembering every little jot and tittle. Just see if you can get the the main idea here. So Matthew 19, starting at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Literally, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any matter? Okay, same kind of question that I just phrased to you about drinking in California. They're coming to him with a macro question, a legal question, and it's phrased precisely. For any matter was the legal phrasing that was used for one set of a generational debate that had been going on for about 50 years or more in Jewish society at that time. Now, Jesus answers, and what does he do? He immediately flips the context from macro and legal to micro and relational. This is what he will see him do every single time. When someone tries to put him, hey, should we be paying taxes? You know, he's going to go right from the macro to the micro. He's going to bring it back down to the personal because that is his concern. That's where the teaching, uh, his teaching really hits pay dirt. All right? He's going to the original intent of the law, not the way that it's been practiced. So he, Jesus, answers and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. All right? Now, listen to the rejoinder from the Pharisees. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, these guys are already the masters of spin. Okay? So he's saying, now, this is the way it was from the beginning. Well, then why did Moses command that you give a certificate of divorce? God didn't command, or Moses didn't command that you give a certificate of divorce to your wife. In other words, he didn't command divorce. (laughs) He commanded divorce in such a way that actually made it harder than it was before. This particular law made divorce much more difficult and was actually a mercy to women. Because prior to this, a man could put his wife away for any reason whatsoever and didn't have to tell anybody about it. He just kicked her out. Now, a woman in that culture without a husband, without a home, there was nothing that she could do pretty much to sustain herself. Women needed to be sustained within families. And so this is what's going on from a a completely informal and arbitrary process that any man could do. Now it becomes a formal legal process, all right? A formal legal process, and it has to be for cause. 
The cause is the matter of indecency, which we're going to need to get to in a second because nobody really knew what that meant in any kind of specificity. So that's what the debate was all about. So the certificate that the man now had to give allowed the woman, she had the certificate, allowed her to be able to remarry. Without that, a prospective groom didn't know who is she, where did she come from, is she still married, is she not married, what's her status, now she's got a certificate. She can actually remarry, she can be supported. Not only that, the certificate took time. The man just couldn't get really mad and kick her out. Now he had to go through this long legal process and that time would give him time to think about it. Not only that, the next rule that Moses says in this same passage is that if a husband divorces his wife, gives her the certificate, and she remarries another, and say that second husband also gives her a certificate of divorce or dies, the first husband can't bring her back, can't remarry her, no matter how much he may want to. Now that sounds a little strange, but think about it. The time that it takes to get the certificate and the finality of that divorce, you can't remarry this woman, no matter how much you may regret it and realize that she was the love of your life, would give you time to think again. It would slow you down. It would make divorce have the consideration that it should have. And so all of these are really merciful things that were happening within the law. But the way the Pharisees are spinning it, God commands divorce. No, that's not it at all. This is the way that it went down. Jesus sees through what they're trying to do. He sees through the corner that they're trying to paint him into. And he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, a matter of indecency, and marries another woman, commits adultery. All right. So it sounds like he's saying there's only one ground for divorce, and that is this matter of indecency, which we have translated as adultery or, or unchastity or whatever. Actually, in Jewish society, there were five grounds for divorce. And everybody knew that. That's why they're not here in the text, but everybody knew that. What is Jesus doing? Now, first of all, let's look at those five grounds. This matter of indecency was the first one. Ervat Devar in Hebrew comes from Deuteronomy 24. It can be translated as a blemish. It can be translated as uh, some kind of disgrace, uncleanness, or indecency. But here's the interesting thing. It probably did not relate to or involve adultery. Because if adultery was proven, it was punishable by death, not by divorce. If you knew that your wife had committed adultery, you could stone her. You're not going to divorce her. And if it, you suspected that she might have been unfaithful, but you couldn't prove it, then they had this bizarre ritual called the bitter waters. I don't know if you've ever heard of this one either. But if a husband suspected his wife, you know, you would think it would go the other way too, but, you know, since men were in charge, what can you say, you know? If a man suspected his wife was unfaithful to him, he would take her to the priest, and there was this elaborate ritual where the priest would take water in a clay pot, take some of the dust from the tabernacle floor, put it in the water, and then recite to the woman the curses that would apply to her if she swore under oath falsely that she had been faithful to her husband. And so if she swore that she had been faithful and she wasn't, 
then the, all these curses were going to happen. And they would write those down on a scroll. And then they would scrape that ink off and put that into the water as well and make her drink it. And if she was false, then she was going to be poisoned and all these terrible things were going to happen. And if nothing happened, then she was okay. So not that that has anything to do with anything except to point out that this ervat devar, this matter of indecency, probably didn't even relate to adultery because that had other remedies in the law. This related to anything else that the husband found objectionable. Now, what are the next three? They, they, they have to do with the neglect of food, clothing, and love. Love understood as marital rights or conjugal rights, even just time and attention. This actually had to do with female slaves, female Hebrew slaves. You had to treat them right. And if you didn't, then they were actually set free. They could get their certificate of divorce because typically Hebrew female slaves were brought into the harem, into the, into the marriage state, either of the, husband, the father, the head of the household, or he would give her to one of his sons. And they had to be treated right. To neglect food, clothing, and the love and attention that they deserved, then they were set free. They got their certificate of divorce. And the fifth was infertility. Also, doesn't seem fair. No, they probably didn't understand how men could be infertile as well at the same time. But be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. That was the idea. So those five, a matter of indecency, neglect of food, love, and clothing, and also infertility, were the five grounds for divorce that everybody understood. Now about this matter of indecency, this Ervat Devar. It wasn't clear what it actually meant. And so there were two schools of rabbinic thought, the two most prominent schools, one led by Hillel and one led by Shammai. And they both had their houses of followers. And they were prominent from the mid-first century BC right up through the beginning of the, of the uh, common time now. You know, into I think Hillel died in 10 CE. And so those two schools, one was very liberal and one was very conservative. Hillel was a liberal. He was very jolly and very funny and, fat, you know, and fast-witted. And then Shammai was a dour one. He was the one that she didn't want to have dinner with. But they had these two different schools of thought. When it came to interpreting this, these two Hebrew words, ervat devar, um, and devar just means a word or a matter or some kind of consequence, um, Hillel separated the two and said that a man could divorce his wife for this shameful indecency, whatever it happened to be, and also for any matter. So think about that. It was basically no-fault divorce in the first century. A man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his dinner, which, to our minds, really undoes everything that Moses was trying to do in terms of making sure a woman had what she needed. Shammai put the two together and said, no, it was only a matter of indecency. It was something that was so heinous that it couldn't be tolerated. And so when the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any matter? They're asking him to decide between these two schools. Because what was happening? It was a free-for-all. All you had to do was find a Hillel-like judge and you would get your divorce for any reason. And the main reason was... Your wife was getting a little older now, and there was this young thing over here that you really wanted. That's what was going on. And if you went to a Hillelite judge, you could get out of that first marriage like that. And the Pharisees are asking him, Jesus, to decide on this. 
Now, Shammai is not saying that there is only one ground for divorce, a matter of indecency. He's upholding all five. And Jesus is siding with Shammai because that's the one that supports the relationships, supports marriage, supports women. It makes perfect sense when we realize what is actually going on here and what Jesus is trying to do. If we're just going to use the law as a fig leaf to cover our intent, then obviously we're losing all of our integrity and we're losing everything that has to do with the kingdom. Those five grounds are not mentioned because they were already known. Jesus is not saying there's only one ground for divorce. He's saying that divorce without real justification, without real need, is wrong. Well, then how about remarriage? Is remarriage really the same as adultery? Well, when we read Luke 16, 18, he seems to be saying exactly that. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. But when we put it back into Hebrew context, it goes to intent. The Greek word kai, which is used as a conjunction and, generally does not imply any causality or any kind of consequence. But even the English word and can imply causality or consequence. Look at uh, Luke 10, 28. You can't look at it. I guess you could put it up if you want to. But it's, it's just simply do this and you shall live. Do this and you shall live. Really, the, the context here is do this in order that you may live, right? There's cause and effect between those two clauses. Now, the Hebrew word vav, which also can be used as a conjunction and, introduces consequence and it shows intent. The way, actually, if you translate this back into Aramaic or back into Hebrew, the way to translate Luke 16, 18, if a man divorces his wife in order to marry another, commits adultery. Isn't that obvious to us? The intent is there. He's using the law as a fig leaf to be able to do what he would do in the dark if he couldn't do it any other way. It's all about intent. If there is adultery in the heart, then the action is adulterous. We're using the law as a fig leaf which is legal in the macro, but not in the micro, not in kingdom. Relationship and kingdom are destroyed in the heart of an adulterer. Perfect common sense. No longer abusive. If we take a look at what Jesus is really saying here in this context, we won't be making those abusive choices. We will understand that divorce is necessary and needed at times to restore balance, to restore peace, and to protect life. That's common sense. We understand that. Now, marriage is a legal contract that must be honored, or there is no marriage. But marriage, like law, is not just a set of rules. And it can't be fulfilled by following rules, by simply being obedient to the rules. Marriage and law, Jesus is telling us, can only be fulfilled in love. Seeing others as ourselves, as an extension of ourselves, and acting and thinking accordingly. Marriage really is the model for all unity in life. Why does Jesus go back to Genesis 1? Because that's the model that God gives us for the unity in life, that two become one flesh. 
Now, in ancient arranged marriages, often the bride and groom never met each other until they were betrothed. And once you were betrothed, you needed a certificate of divorce to get out of it. It was already binding at that point, right? And so in that case, it wasn't about romantic love. We in the West, it's all about romantic love since the troubadours, right, of the 13th and 14th centuries. We think that we find our soulmate and we fall in love and then we bring that love into the marriage and then that is enough of a push to sustain us through 40 years of marriage. The Easterners have a different idea. They understand, you know, marriage is the place where we learn how to love. Because in their culture, two people came who didn't know each other at all. They were now joined politically, familially, They had to learn how to love within that context. And of course, some people did it and some people didn't, like anything else that happens in human affairs. But it's a different understanding. And as we use this for a metaphor for all of life, we realize this is why God used it. Because this is the place, this whole life, everything we're about is where we learn how to love. This is the context within which that can actually happen. Marriage and law can be like that jello mold that we sometimes talk about in here, right? You put the liquid jello into the mold and you hold it there long enough and then you can pull the mold away and the jello is hardened and can stand on its own in that same shape. Marriage is the mold into which we can pour our lives and it'll hold us in place so that our hearts can hold their shape. Whatever happens, law is understood in the same way. It holds us in place. And yet at the same time, if a spouse is abusive, if a spouse is incorrigible, unable to change, then common decency, common sense, demands divorce. We can't leave people and we can't leave children in situations like that. We need to know this. God's purpose is always in joining together God's purpose is always making multiple things to function as one. God creates light. (laughs) He creates order, harmony, peace out of darkness, out of chaos, out of disunity. But if a divorce creates greater order, greater order, greater harmony, greater peace than the marriage itself, then God is in the divorce. I could get run out of a rail for saying something like that. Because obviously God hates divorce. says so right in Malachi 2, right? God hates divorce. But so does anybody who's been through it. I guarantee anybody who's been through it hates divorce. But it's not always the greatest evil. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary. It's all about intent. It comes back to intent. This is what Jesus is trying to show us in these antitheses. Love as intent. Greater connection as intent. If our intent is only about obedience, about mere rule following, Jesus is here to tell us, you can never go where I'm going. I love you, but you can't go where I'm going. Look at your intent when you can switch that everything changes. Let's pray. Father, this is hard stuff. And it's emotional stuff. 
and it tears at us and it makes it harder for us to be able to see principles that can guide us through. But help us to take our relationships seriously. Help us to see more of what you're trying to show us here, that it is all about the intent of our love and about creating the greatest amount of peace and harmony and order and connection. And sometimes those choices are very difficult and sometimes they're counterintuitive. But if that's our intention and we're really intent on getting there, we know that you are with us and will continue to be with us and will never leave us or forsake us or shun us or excommunicate us because you're our Father who loves us the way you do. So thank you for all of this, Lord. Thank you for your love and your constancy and never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.